Welcome once again to our study in the epistle of Paul to the Philippians. We're glad you're with us. And we're going to be looking at verses 24 through 26. We did part of verse 24 last week. We'll finish that off and go on to the next two verses as well. Our time uh, tonight might be a little short because I didn't quite get as many pages done as I uh, had done in the past, but hopefully these verses will be a challenge as well as a comfort to all of us as we recognize that God is the one who is in control and that He will bring about all of His holy will. So let's pray together as we begin. Father, thank You again for the privilege of having Your Word in our hands, in our hearts, our minds. We thank You, Lord, for the way that technology has also enabled us to have Your Word close to us wherever we are. And we thank You, Lord, that You have maintained Your Word and that You have kept Your Word for us. We trust You, Lord, for our lives and for what we are able to accomplish for Your glory and for Your kingdom as we continue to walk in the footsteps of our Messiah. I pray, Lord, that You would bless our time tonight as we look at these verses from Paul's epistle to the Philippians, and we know that they are ever as relevant today as they were when he penned them. For your word forever abides in heaven. And we bless you, Lord, that you have taught us what it means to know you and to have faith in you and to give our lives to you by your word. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. All right. Well, we're going to read today from the Common English Bible. We always read the full chapter, so we have uh, the context in mind. And now the uh, Christian Standard Bible used to be the Holman Christian Standard Bible, HCEB, but they took the name Holman off, so it's essentially the same as far as I know. And here we are in Philippians chapter 1, and we'll read it from the beginning. From Paul and Timothy, slaves to Messiah Yeshua, to all those in Philippi who are God's people in Messiah Yeshua, along with your supervisors and servants. May the grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Yeshua Messiah be with you. I thank my God every time I mention you in my prayers. I am thankful for all of you every time I pray, and it's always a prayer full of joy. I'm glad because of the way you have been my partners in the ministry of the gospel from the time you first believed it until now. I'm sure about this. The one who started a good work in you will stay with you to complete the job by the day of Messiah Yeshua. I have good reason to think this way about all of you, because I keep you in my heart. You are all my partners in God's grace, both during my time in prison and in the defense and support of the gospel. God is my witness that I feel affection for all of you with the compassion of Messiah Yeshua. This is my prayer that your love might become even more and more rich with knowledge and all kinds of insight. I pray this so that you will be able to decide what really matters, and so you will be sincere and blameless on the day of Messiah. I pray that you will then be filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes from Yeshua Messiah, in order to give glory and praise to God. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know that the things that have happened to me have actually advanced the gospel. The whole Praetorian Guard and everyone else knows that I'm in prison for Messiah. 
Most of the brothers and sisters have had more confidence through the Lord to speak the word boldly and bravely because of my jail time. Some certainly preach Messiah with jealous and competitive motives, but others preach with good motives. They are motivated by love because they know that I am put here to give a defense of the gospel. The others preach Messiah because of their selfish ambition. They are insincere, hoping to cause me more pain while I am in prison. What do I think about this? Just this. Since Messiah is proclaimed in every possible way, whether from dishonest or true motives, I am glad, and I will continue to be glad. I am glad because I know that this will result in my release through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Yeshua Messiah. It is my expectation and hope that I won't be put to shame in anything. Rather, I hope with daring courage that Messiah's greatness will be seen in my body, now as always, whether I live or die. Because for me, living serves Messiah, and dying is even better. If I continue to live in this world, I get results from my work. But I don't know what I prefer. I'm torn between the two because I want to leave this life and be with Messiah, which is far better. However, it is more important for me to stay in this world for your sake. I'm sure of this. I will stay alive and remain with all of you to help your progress and the joy of your faith, and to increase your pride in the Messiah Yeshua through my presence when I visit you again. Most important, live together in a manner worthy of Messiah's gospel. Do this whether I come and see you, or I am absent and hear about you. Do this so that you stand firm, united in one spirit and mind, as you struggle together to remain faithful to the gospel. That way, you won't be afraid of anything your enemies do. Your faithfulness and courage are a sign of their coming destruction, and your salvation, which is from God. God has generously granted you the privilege not only of believing in the Messiah, but also of suffering for Messiah's sake. You are having the same struggle that you saw me face, and now here that I am facing. So I wanted to go back uh, just a page from what I handed out, a page from last week, because I want to keep uh, our context here as we're breaking into verse 24. We didn't finish it last week. So verse 24 says, Having the desire to depart and be with Messiah, for that is very much better. Well, what exactly does he mean? To depart and be with Yeshua teaches us that for the believer in Yeshua there is no need to fear the future, nor even to fear death. Now there's a sense in which all of us, and I think rightly so, consider death not to be a part of the original plan of God, that is, his desire that those who are created in his image would live forever. But sin entered the world, and, of course, he allowed that not only allowed it, he opened the way for it. Did not God from all eternity past know that Adam and Kava would sin and disobey him and therefore bring sin into the world? As Paul says in Romans, for by one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and so death passed upon all people. Yes, God knew that. Can we give an explanation for that? Well, I don't think we can ever get a full or uh, uh, absolutely accurate expression of why God has done what he's done, except for this. It brings him glory. 
And how does sin entering into the world bring him glory? Because it showed in a stark contrast the utter holiness of our God. Because the punishment for sin is death. But even more than that, it expressed God as the most loving one who has ever existed in this universe. For he gave himself to pay the penalty for our sin. And that is in Yeshua, our Messiah, who is one with the Father and the Spirit. Don't you believe, I certainly do, that Yeshua, as he was on the cross, his Father grieved for him. Can you express the idea of the Holy One grieving? What does that tell us? Our God is not only a holy God, but he is a loving God. And the ultimate proof of his love is that he gave his Son for us. We know this. The Scriptures teach this directly. By this we know the love of God because of what he gave in order to redeem us. So, you can understand why Paul is saying he wants to be with the Messiah, but he recognizes uh, that there is other things that, that the Lord would want him to do. So surely we are to cling to life and guard it carefully as a gift from God, but in our daily lives of serving Him and walking in the faith He has given to us, we must not fall prey to fearing the future. It is right to try in every way to avoid death. Death is wrong in our universe. And yet, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment. Now, there may be those who uh, live at the time of Yeshua's coming, and will meet him in the air who are believers and will not die. But throughout history of mankind, death is the mark for all who are born. Except, of course, for a very select few, and one of those, of course, is Yeshua. But did he not die? Of course he did. And he rose from the dead. What does this tell us? That he took on true humanity. That he stands in our place. Our Savior Yeshua knows every difficulty that we face. For he himself faced the same difficulties but with far greater intensity. When our days are finished we will be with the Lord in a place where death and the demise of a fallen world do not exist. He goes on to say, Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Paul undoubtedly had taken the words of Messiah spoken directly to him as he was traveling toward Damascus to define the primary focus and impetus for the work Yeshua had called him to accomplish. We read this in Acts. If you remember, we ended with this last week. Acts 9, 3-6. As he, as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Yeshua, whom you are persecuting, but get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. Was he really persecuting Yeshua? Yes. How? He was persecuting those who were followers and believers in him. That tells us that we are one with him, and this is undoubtedly part of the reason why Paul, having come to true faith in the Messiah by God's grace, made the, the phrase, in Messiah, so real. As he was uh, inflicting punishment and death upon the followers of Yeshua, he was also persecuting Yeshua himself. Because 
we are one with him. We dwell with him. We are in the Messiah. At this divine encounter, Paul was struck blind and brought into the city of Damascus, where Ananias was instructed by the Lord to go to him so that he might receive his sight. And, of course, at first Ananias was hesitant to go, knowing the manner in which Paul had persecuted the followers of Yeshua. Wouldn't you be hesitant to go and see this one who was putting to death those who were followers of Yeshua? So in giving the instructions to Ananias, Yeshua stated, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Surely this message to Ananias was made known to Paul, and thus undoubtedly formed the primary directive for his ministry and service to the Lord and his people. He was to be a light to the Gentiles and to the sons of Israel, but he would suffer as a result. There he was in prison. Thus it seems quite likely that his willingness to, quote, remain in the flesh was that he would continue to fulfill the very mission to which Yeshua himself had directly appointed him. So now we go to the rest of verse 24. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Here we witness in Paul the true heart of everyone who fulfills the role of a spiritual teacher, for he longed to fulfill the very purpose given to him by Messiah himself. Now, this is a very broad circle. Are not parents spiritual teachers, teaching their children the reality of who Yeshua is, who Messiah is, who the Father and the Spirit are? This is all the spiritual teaching. But I'm particularly emphasizing those who are called to be overseers or elders, those who take upon their shoulders the responsibility of teaching a group of people on a regular basis and opening the scriptures to them. So Paul gives us a very real example here. He said, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Remember earlier he said, if I had my brothers, I'd just as soon be done with all of this and go and be with the Messiah. But he recognized that the Messiah had chosen him and ordained him, as it were, appointed him to be this messenger. So that purpose was to teach and guide those under his care to understand and commit their lives to extol the glories and grace of God in Messiah. This requires teaching them what it means truly to serve him in one's life and to continue to grow spiritually through the regular application of the means of grace. I'm convinced that the, the Christian church is more and more, not across the board, there are some very stalwart Christian uh, believers and teachers and so forth in the Christian church, but we see more and more this movement towards just doing what is necessary to draw people in. It's very keen and well-scripted uh, worship times, uh, beautiful music, uh, a, a lot of things that one could come in and just enjoy, and then a very short uh, devotional sermon, and that's kind of where it ends. And churches are uh, churches that have it well orchestrated are seeing a huge number of people coming in. But where is the teaching? Where are people learning the Word of God? What are the means of grace? The Scriptures, prayer, and community of the saints. That is, being together with other believers. 
Well, that's what's needed to grow spiritually. You can't just take one or the other. The three work together. Prayer has to be based upon the truth of the Word. One has to know the Word in order to pray as one ought to pray. And how are we encouraged in our life of faith by other believers? That's the community of faith. And those are the means of grace. Surely such instruction, then, must be grounded in the inspired Word of God, the Scriptures, made applicable for every facet of life by the Ruach HaKodesh. And that's where we have life-to-life in terms of community is important. Paul appears to state here that his work with the believers in Philippi was still very much needed, and that this might indicate that God would indeed release him from a sentence of capital punishment. While he longed to be with Yeshua, and to be done with the hardships under which he suffered, he puts the needs of the believing community as a priority over his own comforts. Again, we can think of some very, very large ministries, and I don't know, the Lord undoubtedly has used them in some ways, if they're even reading the Scriptures at all. I'm not putting down what the Lord can do with anyone. But it seems to me that in our times, a great many of these teachers are more focused on what it means to be the teacher than it is to care for those they teach and to make sure that they're giving them the truth of the Word. Sometimes it appears quite obvious that there is the tickling of ears. What does it mean to tickle the ears? To tell the people what they want to hear. And then to have fun doing it. Well, he goes on to say in verse 25, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. The opening phrase of verse 25, Convinced of this, utilizes a perfect participle. We talked about another perfect participle last week. Um, The perfect has the sense, whether it's in a participle or whether it's in a finite verb, it has the sense in the Greek of something that is finished and done in the past, but has ongoing ramifications throughout the future. So if we were talking more in in biblical Greek, uh, I might use the perfect to say, 48, near, nearly 48 years ago, I married Paulette Payne, and she became Paulette Haig. Now, I wouldn't have to say anything more than that if you understood that I used a perfect uh, verb, because it means I was I married back at this time, and I'm still married. In other words, that action that took place in the past, that was a finished action, still has ongoing reality. So that's what the perfect participle has, which in this context gives the cause or grounds of the main verb, which in this case is the verb oida, to know. But what was it of that which Paul was convinced? He said, being convinced or convinced of this. It seems very likely that, knowing the needs of the Philippian community, and that Yeshua himself had chosen him and given him a mission to proclaim the true message of the scriptures and to disciple other believers as well as whole communities to walk in the footsteps of the Messiah. He considers that the future will hold his exoneration, that is, why he was in prison in the first place, because he was accused of causing riots and and, uh, doing things which were against the government of Rome and so forth, that the future will hold his exoneration and he will once again be in fulfilling the work Yeshua gave him to do. 
So, he says, my work apparently is not done. Why? Because it was needful for this group of believers in Philippi to have him continue to disciple and teach them. It seems likely that when he writes, you all, uh, which is very clear in the Greek, pasin, uh, humin, he has in mind other communities as well as the believers in Philippi. There's no doubt that an epistle written to Philippi would undoubtedly have been copied and um, passed on to others as well. And there may have been those who were visiting and heard the, the uh, epistle read as it would have been. Uh, not everyone had a copy of it, obviously. But at any rate, uh, so it's, he, he recognizes that Philippi is one community, but it spreads out because of its influence to other communities. And this is more likely what he means by you all. Thus, when he states, I know, we should not have in mind necessarily that he had some kind of direct word from the Lord, but rather that he recognized that his mission as an apostle for Yeshua was not yet completed. As F.F. F. Bruce notes, his knowledge that his survival would be for the benefit of his fellow Christians and his confidence that God would do whatever was necessary for their growth in grace combined to give him good hope that he would indeed be granted a further spell of life and apostolic activity. I always liked F.F. Uh, F. Bruce's uh, commentaries and comments. He um, was a very, very uh, astute uh, scholar and uh, uh, yet a, a very well-grounded person. He was easy to talk with and uh, to have a conversation with. I remember meeting him numbers of times at annual meetings and uh, you know it was he, he was a genuine genuine uh, teacher and servant of the Lord so I always like to quote him where I'm able <laughs> he says for your progress and joy in the faith often in this epistle as well in the other Pauline epistles there is an emphasis upon spiritual growth and progress already in this epistle he has emphasized progressing in love for fellow believers as one also grows in knowledge of the truth as he did in chapter 1 verse 9 and growing in faithful service to the Lord and one another as he does in verse 11 and in chapter 2 verse 12 we'll read he will emphasize the need for believers to grow in obedience to the eternal truths of the scriptures so Paul like all of the apostles are very keen on the emphasis that we who are in the Messiah Yeshua cannot remain stagnant just think well I'm good enough you know I went forward I raised my hand I said yes to the Lord I've been a Christian for numbers of years that, that's, I've got it I'm in well if you if we think of any kind of an example if you th think of someone who is uh, attempting to join a pro athletic situation say someone who wants to uh, go on the tour with uh, in golfing and, you know, wants to win the big one. <laughs> what is that person going to do? Just say, well, you know, I played putt-putt golf just fine. I don't have to practice anymore. I'll do just fine. No. Everything has gone over and over and over again and practiced and practiced so that it becomes the, the, the natural way of doing things. Why is it that so often we meet people who say, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian, and when you begin to talk with them, it's very evident that they don't really know the Bible. And if they know any part of the Bible, it's not the whole Bible, but it's a, something from the last part. 
um, the the foundation in the Torah and in the prophets and in the writings is not even well known and understood. And therefore, the building that's built upon something without a foundation is very dubious. It just is not strong. So, Paul and all the apostles affirm this need for all of us to be growing in our understanding of who God is, what He has done for us, who Yeshua is, what is the uh, what, what is the work of the Spirit in each of our lives? And then to come together and help one another grow in knowing and applying the Scriptures in our everyday life. Note that as believers progress in their faith, in our faith we could say, becoming mature in the knowledge and living out the life of faith brings joy. This means that regardless of what trials we may face in our lives, the true and strong faith in God's all-encompassing power and love enables us to have inner peace and joy, knowing that God causes all things to work together for His glory and our good, as we read in Romans 8.28. For we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to His purposes. But the fact that progress in the faith brings joy to the believer's life means the opposite is also true. Since growth in faith issues in greater obedience and thus giving more and more glory and praise to God in one's life, which is, as I might say, the very focus of joy, to fail to mature and grow in one's faith brings the opposite of joy. For those whom the Lord loves, He also disciplines. And though his discipline is the very expression of his love to disobedient children, it may bring hardship to the believer who has failed to progress in their faith and are lured into the things of the world. Hendrickson puts it this way, Why is it important that believers progress? Because not to progress means to regress. Standing still spiritually is impossible. And regression produces depression, that is, dejection. But progress means happiness, the joy unspeakable and full of glory. Hence, Paul very neatly unites these two concepts and writes that he expects to remain with his friends on earth for their progress and joy in the faith. You see, when we progress in our faith, it brings us deeper, settled joy that cannot be disrupted so easily. But if we do not make progress in our faith, if we don't grow in our faith, we are sitting ducks for depression and all kinds of questions about what faith really is. Once again, the very means of progressing in our life of faith in Yeshua are to be daily immersed in the Scriptures, to have prayer as a significant part of our daily living, and to be a functioning member of a believing community of faith. All of these are vitally important. Though in our modern world, where individualism is so prevalent, it is important to note that Paul will emphasize the fact that true progress in one's faith happens in the context of community. So, I've talked to people and they say, well, um, I don't really like to go to a community. I just like to, you know, I'm, I'm reading my Bible and doing it on my own. I see why. Oh, 
Communities have so much trouble. I've been in communities and they've had all kinds of trouble and so forth and so on. And I, I'm, I just don't want anything to do with it. But that's why we're together to help one another in that trouble. Not only do we see in the community where there is trouble that we don't want to go down that path that others have done, but it enables us to come alongside of people and to be friends and to be helpers one with the other to cause each other to grow in the things of the Lord. So that your proud confidence in me may abound in Messiah Yeshua through my coming to you again. Now, that sounds kind of the NESB translation. So that your proud confidence in me. Well, I could understand why the people in Philippi would have had a confidence in him. And proud is... uh, actually um, translating a Greek word that means more abundant, something abundant or full, so that you're and they say proud um, uh, it does I, I think this is one time when the NESB could have done better uh, so that your large confidence in me or, or that your pronounced confidence in me or something to that effect, but when we think about pride we think of it as a sin I'm just not real happy with the way the NSB has translated this particular verse. Um, So I I write, the opening phrase of the NSB would seem to indicate that what Paul is expressing is that the proud confidence of the believers in Philippi would have Paul's steadfast love and concern for them as its focus. Now, there is a parallel to the idea that someone would appreciate strongly appreciate a leader like Paul and would be confident in their leadership. That's clear. We found a parallel thought as to how the NESB translated this verse in 2 Corinthians 1, 13-14. He says, For we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand, and I hope you will understand until the end, just as you also partially did understand us, that we are your reason to be proud, as you also are ours in the day of our Lord Yeshua. So the point simply is is that um, they would be ready for the coming of the Lord. And that, um, therefore, the apostles would be, um, as it were, proud of them, that they, they heard the message, accepted it, and did what they were supposed to do. But the way that the Greek sentence is worded in our text may be taken differently and uh, not maybe, I think most certainly should be taken differently. And to show the construction of the Greek, I give it to you in its word order to show that the words in me could be understood differently. So the thing that I just, I know that I'm getting a little technical here, but some of you can read the Greek, some of you can't, that's all right. But literally, if we were to take it in exactly the word order of the Greek, it says, in order that your boasting may abound in Messiah Yeshua, in, or we could translate it, by me through my coming again to you. Now, this is one thing that uh, even early Greek students learn, <laughs> and that is the preposition en, which means in, uh, can also mean by means of, and uh, is used that way. And I believe that's how it should be translated here. So, the issue is how we are to understand the phrase in me. Does in me, as the NESB has it, that your proud confidence in me 
may abound? Is that where it should be? Or should it be afterwards? Because if you again see in the Greek, what is it? In order that your boasting may abound in Messiah is the word order. In Messiah Yeshua. And then by me through my coming again to you. You can see exactly how I'm understanding it. That their boasting in the Messiah was the fruit of the Spirit working in their hearts as Paul came and gave them the gospel and discipled them in the truth of who Yeshua is. So, my question, is Paul the expected focus of their increased boasting or is Messiah Yeshua the subject of their increased boasting? As noted above, for the Philippi community to rejoice and boast in the deliverance of Paul from his Roman prison would surely be warranted. But interestingly, when Paul uses the verb kauksachomai, that is, to boast, with the preposition en, in, he consistently admonishes believers to boast in God, not man. So we have the following where he's basically, in all of these, has Jeremiah 9, 23-24 in mind. In 1 Corinthians uh, 131, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Here we have that same word that's used in our text. Or 1 Corinthians 3.21, so then, let no one boast in men. And finally, 2 Corinthians 10.17, but he who boasts is to boast, is to boast in the Lord. Given the fact that Paul often has Jeremiah 9.23-24 through 24 in mind when he speaks of boasting, it seems best to understand the same thing in our text, especially since the in me in our text is separated from the verb to boast. Given these data, it seems best to interpret in me to mean the instrumental use of the preposition. That means Paul is the instrument, not the focus of the boasting. He is the one that God used to bring the message to the Philippi community. And therefore, it is because he has done this that they are boasting in the Lord. So, that's what we mean by an instrumental use of the preposition in, which it often conveys, and thus to render the phrase, so that your boasting may abound in Messiah Yeshua through my, and I'm adding the word labors, through me, but through my labors when I return to you. The lesson we learn from Paul's example and inspired words is this. If we are privileged to be used of the Lord to help others or to lead them in the truth of the Scriptures and thus to aid them in their spiritual growth, the praise should be directed to the Lord, for apart from Him we can accomplish nothing. This does not mean that expressing appropriate appreciation for leaders or teachers is wrong. Of course not. The scriptures even tell us to, um, to appreciate those who labor among us. And the scriptures equally say that the uh, laborer is worthy of his hire, and in that context is talking about those who are working hard in teaching. Now, I don't think that those who teach should ask for money. I think they should be willing to do it without pay if that's what it requires. And obviously, Paul made his own way. Now, there's no doubt that, in fact, it's interesting because we never find anywhere in the apostolic scriptures where a teacher asks for money for himself. 
Whenever Paul asked for financial help, it was to give it to others. He was taking uh, financial aid to those who were in Jerusalem. However, Paul does teach us that the labor is worthy of his hire, and it ought to be the expression of those who uh, benefit from teaching to support those who teach. But there's, I think, my feeling is, is that there should never be a time when a teacher of the gospel, a teacher of the scriptures, should uh, solicit funds. Well, so that's what I mean when I say this does not mean that expressing appropriate appreciation for leaders or teachers is wrong. But what it does mean is this. All praise and honor ought ultimately to result in giving God the glory for all that is good. And so we read, Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. That well-known verse tells us that everything that we have that's right and good is because God has enabled us to have it. And He ultimately ought to get all the glory and all the praise. He says, Through my coming to you again, undoubtedly, the Philippian community was engaged in constant prayer for Paul's deliverance, and we should consider that Paul likewise was engaged in such prayer, since he states plainly that he recognized the ministry which he could fulfill within the community of Philippi. As Hendrickson has shown, there is sufficient historical evidence to show that Paul was released and that he visited Philippi again. So don't you imagine that would have been the second time that he comes to Philippi and is together with those who were uh, praying for him and to whom he wrote this epistle and who were seeking to care for him even while he was in prison. Remember, I mentioned that very often in the Roman prisons they didn't feed the prisoners. If they did feed them anything, it was total slop, literally. So the, the basic needs of any prisoner had to come from those outside of the prison who would come and give them things. We have to believe that the community at Philippi obviously um, sent Herodotus uh, and others uh, to perhaps to aid Paul, and he was very grateful. But can you imagine what kind of party there must have been when Paul came back to Philippi a second time? Now, I know there's controversies um, over whether or not uh, he actually did visit Philippi a second time. Some scholars think no, some scholars think yes, but I think Hendrickson has done well to show indeed that there's plenty of evidence that he did. Um, he was released from prison. He, uh, his life was spared and he visited Philippi again. So you can just imagine what kind of celebration there would have been. So here once again we see that the scriptures emphasize the wonderful reality that God is in control of all that takes place in our world even if it appears that the powers that be are intent upon erasing any and all references to the existence and all-controlling power of the Almighty. And uh, I know that there will be those who will be listening to this after the fact uh, and at a different time of the year and so forth, but we are just uh, planning to celebrate uh, Purim uh, tomorrow evening as it comes upon us and probably what is the primary lesson that we learn from the book of Esther, the, the Megillah, it, it is 
that no power in this world can stand in the way of what God intends to accomplish. And he can accomplish what he intends to do, even through means that appear too meager to gain the victory. Clearly, the story of Esther is all about the victory of God for his people. What God has promised, he will accomplish. So, and the current... Uh, the, the current zeitgeist or spirit of the times with this pandemic and with all of these different theories of what's going on in governments and what the plans are and so forth and so on. I even uh, noticed that the uh, Orthodox Jews, uh, primarily headed by the Kabad, uh, are uh, praying for the coming of the Messiah on this time of Purim believing that if they all pray at the same time that the Messiah will come. Well, I don't know who they're praying to. If they're praying to the God of the universe, uh, what I understand is that the Scriptures teach us that if a person regards iniquity in in their heart, that God won't listen to their prayers. He won't hear them. No greater transgression can come than to openly reject God's Messiah. However, I think it's, uh, it seems like, just uh, from a purely logical standpoint, they're amassing themselves together to pray for the coming of the Messiah. It seems like a, and I'm just suggesting this, I'm not saying that this is what's going to happen, but it seems like a well-fit plan to bring a false Messiah that they will receive. I hope it's not the case. But I pray and hope that those who think that they know better, that they've rejected Yeshua, that in our times we will have the ability to come alongside some of them. And you never know who it's going to be. You could be standing in line at the at the grocery store. You could be waiting for uh, your car to be serviced and be in a waiting room and others others there. You never know when you're going to have the opportunity to just strike a conversation and then pray to yourself that the Lord would open the opportunity to give the grand story of the gospel. Because it is the power of God, the gospel is, that results in salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the non-Jew, also to the Gentile. This is God's plan as he promised to Abraham, in your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So, This is the story of what we're reading right here in Paul. That God is able to overcome even the strongest of governments to bring about his plan. Because Rome at the time was in full uh, power. And yet, Paul is released. Surely Rome in the time of Paul was a major world power. But they could not hold nor silence one of the most outspoken voices proclaiming the truth that Yeshua of Nazareth was crucified, buried, arose on the third day, who did great miracles and proved himself to be the promised Messiah and Savior of sinners, and who ascended unto the Father and has promised he's coming again. So, I hope these uh, few thoughts are helpful and encouraging. And uh, again, Chag Sameach, have a great Purim. And look forward to being with you again next week as we continue our study in this epistle of Philippians.